for present this evening. We appreciate the presence of everyone. And I hope you've got your Bible with you and eager to take it as we study together. We want to continue a study. This is the fourth of five lessons that we call Back to the Bible. And this is a home Bible study series for those who may be visiting with us, the elders, the other elders ask that I present that again. And so this is not only just to present the material itself, but kind of go through some of the how-tos and why we present certain thoughts and, and what I would do at this particular juncture in a study. And so I'll remind you again, as we have each time, the ways that we might use this material. Uh, hopefully you'll take a look at this material and see some things that need to be taught and why they need to be taught and then develop your own material. When you sit down and you say, I want to have a Bible study with my friend or neighbor, or you're welcome to download this material and use it as is, or set up a home Bible study with a friend and I'll be glad to come and teach it, or set up a virtual study on Zoom and I'll be glad to join you in that study if need be, or even perhaps a better way may be uh, is to go to my YouTube page and have your friend, send your friend there and you watch it with them. And there's an introduction there to this series, about five minutes to have them to look at that and then go to lesson one, two and three and four will be put up by Tuesday and then five next week and it will be then complete. So let's look now at lesson number four. The first three of these I call foundation lessons. And before you can build any house, you need to spend a great deal of time getting the foundation ready. And if the foundation is not prepared, the house is not going to stand. And so if you get ready to jump in to tell someone, here's what you need to do to be saved, and they don't have a good understanding of the foundations that we've been talking about, your house may not stand. I know by experience, I've tried that. Uh, where when someone would want to talk about salvation, I'd jump in and talk to them about what to do to be saved and come to find out they don't even believe and the Bible being inspired of God. So they're rejecting portions of the Bible. So we're not ready to build on top of a foundation that's not there. And so we're ready now for lesson number four, what the Bible says about salvation. We're going to review what we've seen. I always do that in the studies. And so because there may be a question that comes up somewhere in the process that I want to go back and remind them. You remember in lesson so-and-so we dealt with this. So here's what we've seen. In lesson one, we talked about the Bible being the word of God. And we started with the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then therefore we know there is a God and his word is true and Jesus is the son of God. And so we gave evidence that Jesus indeed was raised from the dead. There's an abundance of evidence of the resurrection of Christ. And therefore we conclude that there is a God and that his word is true. And so because his word is true, then we can accept it. And so we talked about the inspiration of the scriptures. All of the Bible is inspired. Every word of the Bible is inspired. And then we concluded in lesson one, since the Bible is the word of God and Jesus is raised from the dead, we must accept the word of God, we must believe it, try to understand it and do whatever it says. Then we talked about making, uh, applying the Bible to us today. And so we started raising the question, can we understand the Bible? And yes, we can. Can we understand it alike? And the answer is yes. We saw that it makes a difference what a person believes in religion. We also saw a distinction in the Old and New Testaments and how that behind the, the written word is the power and the authority of God behind the written word. And then we move to lesson three where we talked last time about the theme of the Bible. And that is we started with sin, the problem of sin, and how the answer to that problem of sin is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that becomes the theme throughout all of the scriptures. And we talked about who Jesus is and how he died for our sins and he was raised 
from the dead and proven to be the Son of God. We talked about his crucifixion and how that is the theme that runs all through the Bible. Jesus is our Redeemer or Christ is our Redeemer. We talked about how the Bible is organized, how the Bible is put together, and the dispensations of time from the patriarchal mosaic and the gospel age. Now we're ready to build on those foundations that we've just built. And so let's talk about what the Bible says about salvation. And let's start with this. Let's go back to the problem of sin now. Let's start with sin, and that's the problem that we build on as we talk about salvation. If there's not a problem with sin, there is no need for salvation. So let's start with the question of sin. Let's begin by raising the question that of when we become sinners before God. And when do we become accountable? And so I want to start with Romans 7 and in verse 9 that tells us that we sin when we become accountable before God. Here is what Paul said. He's speaking of his own life. He said, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Paul is not talking about his life as a Christian. He's talking about the process of becoming a sinner before God. And I know that because of becoming a, becoming a child of God, recognizing he's a sinner. He talks about being sold under sin in Romans chapter 7. But let's see that he's talking about a point of accountability. I like to talk about a point of accountability and not the age of accountability. That's not necessarily incorrect, but that I don't want to give the impression there is a certain age at which one becomes accountable before God. That may vary from person to person. So here is a point of accountability that Paul is addressing. There is a point in his life before he was accountable, and then after that he was accountable before God. So what did he say? He said, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. There are six points on the screen here, and there are five of those, or one of those is put in italics to suggest that has been implied in the text for two reasons, and I'll share those with you as we go along. Paul talks about being without law, and in the contrast to that, on the one side you have being without law, and on the other side we have the commandment. Here we have one is alive, and here is one dead. Those are opposites. So if we have sin here then we must be no sin on the other side. That's one reason I know that no sin is on that side of the equation. There's another reason I know that. He says, I was without the law. Well, without the law, there can be no transgression. Where there is no law, there is no transgression, Paul would say. Sin is a transgression of the law, 1 John 3 and in verse 4. We noted that in lesson number 2. So if one is without law, there is no sin. So what is Paul talking about? Paul is saying in his life he was without law. So what law is he talking about in this kind? Is he talking about all law? Is he talking about civil law? Is he talking about New Testament law? Or is he talking about Old Testament law? Well, let's see. This is at verse 9. So let's go back to verse 4. Remember in an earlier study, we talked about becoming dead to the law by the body of Christ. That was the law of Moses, wasn't it? When I look at verse 7, he said, I had not known covetousness except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. That's one of the Ten Commandments. So in the context, what he means by law is the Old Testament law. So he's saying in his own life, there was a time when he was without law, but then the commandment came. In what sense did the commandment come? Did Paul live before the giving of the Ten Commandments and giving of the law of Moses? No, he didn't live before that. But there was a sense in which it came into his life after he was born and after he begins to grow. So in what sense? Well, there was a time in his life, it was all the same as if there is no law. He was not accountable to law. He could not obey law. He could not disobey law. 
But then there came a time when the commandment came. Now he's accountable to law. He can understand the law, he can obey law, and he can disobey law. Now Paul, what about the time when you were without law? He said, I was alive once. Why were you alive? Because there could be no sin. If there is no law, there could be no sin. So he's committing no sin, and when there is no sin in his life, his relationship to God was one of life. That's the condition in which one is born. Now what I'm learning from that is, we often talk about little children are saved. Saved suggests they were lost and rescued from that. So a little child who dies in infancy is alive before God. They're not lost and then saved. They never were in a lost relationship. Their relationship was one of life before God, like we have here in Romans 7 and in verse 9. So Paul said, this is what I used to be like. I was without law, and there was no sin in my life, and I was alive. But then he reached a point in his life where he understands law. He can obey or disobey law. That's when he committed sin. So what's the big deal with sin? He says, here's what happened. He says, I died, he said. I died. And that's what we want to focus on now. So when does one become a sinner? When they reach the point they can understand law, obey law, and disobey law, and now they're accountable before God, and when they reach that point of accountability, that's when they commit sin. What's the big deal with sin again? It is that they die before God. So let's talk about that death. Man is in a right relationship with God, illustrated here that man and God are in fellowship one with the other. That's the condition in which one is born. And so I was alive once without the law, Paul said. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What sin does is bring a wedge between man and his God. Isaiah 59 says, your sins have separated you and your God. So sin comes in as a wedge and separates between man and his God. Now here are a couple of passages we've considered before. James 1 and in verse 15, when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth Death, that's a separation. Well, another passage we might cite is Romans 5 and verse 12. Death passed upon all men, death in the sense of this separation here, this sin which separates man from God. Romans 5 and 12 says that death passed upon all men because all have sinned. So here is the problem man has when he reaches the point of being accountable, he violates the law. And now he stands separate, separate, severed and separated from his God. Now here's what the gospel does. The gospel that we often refer to as being the good news simply makes us aware of sin at this juncture. We'll say more what the gospel does in a moment. But what we're concerned with now is the fact the gospel makes us aware of sin. And so here's what the passage says. Like in John 16 and in verse 8. The Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So we've talked about how the Holy Spirit revealed the word. In that word he's revealed, he's convicting the world of sin, making man aware of sin. Well, here's a passage in Romans chapter 3 and in verse 20. I turn there with me to Romans 3 and in verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, that's talking about the Old Testament law, I understand. But here's what he says law will do. Law makes you aware there is sin in your life. Well, the gospel does the same thing. It makes men aware that there is sin in their life. Here's a case in point in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, those who had crucified the Son of God heard the gospel being preached, and they were convicted or pricked in their hearts that is, the gospel made them aware they were sinners. And then they wanted to know, men and brethren, what shall we do? 
when they were cut to the heart, Acts 2 and in verse 37. Now, so we might ask, why is that called then the good news? How could it be good news when the gospel makes me aware I'm a sinner? I wanted to hear good news. I wanted to hear something good and encouraging. And the gospel just made me aware I am severed and separated from God. Well, it's much like going to the doctor. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, I've got some good news. I have found a problem. I found a blockage in your heart or I found cancer, but it's very treatable. You say, well, what good news is in that? The good news is we found what the problem is. It's going to kill you if we don't find the problem. It's going to end your life if we don't find the problem. We're glad now that we found the problem so we can treat the problem. That's the good news in the gospel pointing out our sin. So now we know the problem of sin. Let's consider the fact the Bible tells us we're saved by grace. And so we're going to start with Ephesians 2 and in verse 8. I use that passage for a reason, and the reason is it mentions grace and faith, and I'm going to explain that to my candidate that I'm talking to and trying to reach with the gospel. Ephesians 2 and in verse 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. So let's take a look at the fact we're saved by the grace of God. So how can I be saved from this sin that separates me from God? I'm saved by the grace of God. Now that indeed is the good news. Now let's go back to the doctor illustration. You go to the doctor and he says, you have a blockage in your heart. And you say, well, doctor, what can we do? And he says, there's nothing I can do. Well, then there's not much good news there. But when the doctor says, I have found a problem, but it's treatable and we can fix the problem, then that indeed is good news. So the same thing is true with reference to sin. The good news is we can be saved from that sin. The good news is God will forgive. Let's look at Acts chapter 13 and in verse 32. Here is a sermon that the Apostle Paul preached on his first missionary journey. And notice that his point is, and I'm not going to read the entire sermon, obviously, Acts chapter 13, now and in verse uh, 23, actually, that should say instead of 32, Acts chapter 13 and in verse 23, that this is man's uh, seed, according to the promise that God made, that God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Here's his announcement. That Israel now has a Savior, and his name is Jesus. There is a Savior that can save us from our sins. Well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 8 and in verse 12. We've already considered Hebrews 8 in a previous study, but in that study we noted that the promise of the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31 was under the new covenant, God would remember their sins and iniquities against them no more. So here's the good news. All of the sin that separates us from God, God said, I'll take it away, I'll wipe it away, and, and never hold that against you anymore. Now how is that done? Ephesians 2.8 says we're saved by grace through faith. So let's talk about grace. Let's define grace. Grace could be referred to as the undeserved favor of God. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to illustrate. 1 Corinthians 15 is not talking in this verse about salvation from sin, but Paul is talking about his being an apostle. And he uses the grace of God in connection with that. Notice at verse 9, I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. What has he just said? He said, I don't deserve it at all. I haven't earned it. I don't deserve it. What I deserve is not to be an apostle, not even to be a Christian, not even to be forgiven, but, but what? Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. How on earth could you be an apostle? Because of an undeserved favor from God. Let's go further to Titus 3. I want you to see in the context of Titus 3, 
We'll see the word kindness. We'll see the word love. Not our own righteousness. Even the word mercy. And it's equated with grace. Let's follow this in the context. Now this will be helpful in talking to our friends to show them here's what the grace of God involves. Notice Paul says in this context, he talks in verse 3 about how ungodly we used to live. We used to be ungodly and live a very ungodly life. And then he says, but here is how we're able to change. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord, that having been justified by his grace. Now follow this. What he refers to as the kindness of God, he refers to as the love of God. I'm not saying that they are completely 100% equated, but we're saved by the kindness of God, and then he equates with that the love of God. And what he refers to as the kindness of God and the love of God, he says it's not by the works of our own righteousness. And he equates that with mercy. And then he equates all of that with grace. I just learned from that context a definition of grace. It's something that's not by our own righteousness. It's something about the mercy of God. It has something to do with the kindness and the love of God. Nothing we earn and nothing we deserve. We're saved by the grace of God. Now here's what that grace did. Hebrews 2 and 9 said, by the grace of God, he tasted death for every man. So that sacrifice we talked about in our last lesson, Jesus dying on the cross, that was by the grace of God that God allowed that sacrifice, the blood sacrifice to be made. Now when we read about the grace of God, it includes all that God has done for us. It includes his love, the blood that was shed, the word that has been given, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit. All of that is involved in the grace. We don't have a contradiction when the Bible says you're saved by grace. And then another passage says you're saved by the blood. And another one says you're saved by the love of God. And another one says we're saved by the Holy Spirit. And another one says we're saved by the Father. All of that could be encompassed in the grace of God. So how can we be forgiven? We're forgiven by the grace of God. But now I want us to notice, thirdly, we've noticed the problem of sin, we're saved by grace, that grace is conditional. Grace can be, and in the Bible it is conditional. Many have the concept that grace, if the Bible says you're saved by grace, there are no conditions or it's not by grace. But grace can be conditional, and let's illustrate that. In Romans chapter 4 and in verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. So grace and faith, grace and condition are tied together in the same passage. And so I usually stop at that point. If this person I'm dealing with may think there are no conditions and just read that passage again and maybe again and maybe a third time, it is of faith that it might be by grace. They're not contradictory. They're not opposed to one another. They go hand in hand. Now let me illustrate. I might tell you, I will give you my watch. That's a matter of grace. What have you done to deserve it? You haven't paid me a thing for it. You haven't worked for it, but I'm telling you, I will give you my watch. Is it unconditional? No, it might be on the condition if you come and get it. You have to meet the condition. Now, just because it's not a great condition or a hard condition doesn't mean it's not conditional. I'll give you my watch if you come and get it. Here's how grace and faith work together as per Romans 
4.16. Now let's go to the Old Testament and illustrate. In the case of the taking of the city of Jericho, and it might be that with your friend you might have to retell that story of Joshua 6. But here is what God said about the taking of the city of Jericho. I have given into thy hand Jericho. It's a gift. Joshua 6 and in verse 2. So does that mean there's no condition? No, we noted in Joshua 6, 3 through 7, that they had to march around the city once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, march around the city and blow the trumpets and shout. There were conditions to be met, but it was still a gift because God said, I have given. So grace can be and is conditional. So let's look at three passages that are quite simple. And I would, at this juncture, usually go quite slow and methodical through this, driving home the point that there are conditions that have to be met. There is obedience. We must obey to receive grace. Like Matthew 7, 21, which says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. See, not just anyone who's religious is going to enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will. There are conditions that are laid down. Secondly, Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, speaking of Christ, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered, and being perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all those who obey him. He offers eternal salvation to those who obey. How does eternal salvation come? By grace, but it's to those who obey. 1 Peter 1, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. How did their souls become pure? Through obeying the truth. There are conditions to receive the grace of God. Now, let's go a step further. Let's talk about how we're saved by faith. And notice now we're going to that very same text that we did a moment ago in Ephesians chapter 2. We had a moment ago a chart that said saved by grace... Same passage, we're going to the same passage to see we're saved by faith. Because the text says, for by grace are you saved through faith. Grace and faith go hand in hand. Well, let's show that faith is essential. Faith is essential to being saved. We have to have faith in order to be saved. Let's take John 3.16. This is one your friend will probably know by heart. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. It shows that faith is essential. Jesus would say that if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins, John 8, 24. And so one must believe in order to be saved. But let's go a step further. Let us notice that it is not by faith alone. Now your friend that you teach may or may not believe that, but there is a very good chance they may believe in salvation by faith alone. And we need to encourage to, that the Bible teaches that it is not by faith alone. How do I know that to be true? Well, here are some people who believed and yet they were not saved. Like James 2 and in verse 19, even the devils believed or demons believed and trembled. So even devils or demons believe they were not saved. Let's notice another case in John chapter 8. Here were some Jews who believed on Christ, verse 31. Verse 44 says they were children of the devil. So here are two cases of people who had faith. They believed. They believed on Christ in John 8. But they were not saved. So that tells me it's not by faith alone. But let's see further evidence of that. James 2.24 tells us specifically it is not by faith alone. You see how that by works a man is justified and not by faith alone only. 
But let's go even further. If I can show there's any other condition, if it's just one other condition, or ten other conditions, makes no difference. If I can show that there is one other thing that is required besides faith, then it's not by faith alone. So I'm not ready at this juncture to mention, for example, baptism. I'm interested in mentioning repentance that they may agree with. So let's go to Acts 17, 30 and 31. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which he'll judge the world. So if God demands repentance as a condition of being saved, then I'm concluding from that it can't be by faith alone. But let's go to Romans chapter 10 and in verse 16. Sometimes the word faith stands for obedience. Quite often when the Bible will mention you're saved by faith, therefore being justified by faith, Romans 5, 1, for example. That faith includes obedience, all that God would require. And you say, how do you know that? Well, let's notice a case in point. I cite Romans 10 and in verse 16. I want you to notice how that the Apostle Paul uses the term obey to mean believed and believed to mean obey. How do I know that? He said, but they have not all, here's his word, obeyed the gospel. They hadn't obeyed. That's the word he uses. Now he's going to give us some evidence of that by quoting an Old Testament scripture as he often does. And he quotes from Isaiah 53, Lord who has believed our report. He cited a passage that does not mention the word obey. It mentions the word believed. You know what that tells me? That tells me the word believed is used in the sense of obeyed, and obeyed is used in the sense of the word believed. They're used synonymous in this context. Sometimes the word faith stands for obedience. Now let's go back to being saved by faith. Now what I'm seeing in this is that faith includes, just like grace includes the blood of Christ, his love, and what work of the Holy Spirit, faith includes our belief, our love, and our obedience, and all that God requires, and even our faithfulness. So I'm saved by grace. What does that include? Well, that includes his blood, that includes his love, that includes his instructions. I'm saved by grace through faith. That's my response to that. So I'm saved by grace through faith. Now let's talk about the conditions that are laid down. The conditions that are laid down. What are the conditions? Well, one must hear the gospel. And I would, at this juncture, if I'm teaching my friend, I would go very slow and methodical and make sure we read every single passage and explain what it means. That they, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. You can't have faith in Christ until you first heard the message of Christ. You've heard that message, I would remind them. We studied the resurrection in lesson one. We've talked about who Jesus is in lesson three. You've heard the message of who Jesus is and that he was raised from the dead. And we must believe that message. We must accept that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. He said, if you believe not that I'm he, you'll die in your sins. We must repent of our sins. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. Now let me footnote here to say this is at this juncture. If I'm studying with someone in a home Bible study, it's at this juncture. I want to explain to them what repentance involves. Very thoroughly. In other words, if, if the person, uh, and I'll get to what the details of that would be in just a second. I'm going to explain it, on it with any person, but I might explain it more thoroughly with another person. Now, why is that? Well, everyone needs to understand what repentance is involves is a change of the mind. It's not merely being sorry that I committed sin, but then go on doing the same thing. But it's being sorrowful for my sin and changing my direction. It means I quit the sin. And so I'm going to explain that to them. Here's what repentance involves. 
Repentance doesn't mean that you just regret your sin and you go on doing the same thing. But I'm going to be a little more thorough. And I might have more material prepared if I need to share this with them. That repentance involves quitting and ceasing whatever sin I might be guilty of. So if it's, if it's doing drugs, I'm going to have to quit doing drugs. If it's cursing, I'm going to have to quit my cursing. If it involves fornication, I need to quit my fornication. Why do I need to be thorough here? Very, very likely that you could be running into someone who's now in their second or third or fourth marriage. And we're misleading them if we're thinking they can just be baptized and live in that second marriage, third marriage or fourth marriage, if it doesn't fit the pattern of the New Testament. And so prior to this, I'm footnoting here, this is not part of my discussion in my class that I'm teaching, but prior to this, in those first three lessons, I've used what I call uh, uh, the downtime or shooting the breeze time with them before when I'm just conversing with them to inquire a little bit, to gather some information. Is this a second marriage? Is this the third marriage? Is, is this an unscriptural marriage? How did y'all get to meet? Well, we've only been married a year and you realize they've got five children. Well, th this must be a second marriage. I want to know some more about that. So I may need to ask questions at this juncture because I may need to talk to them about their marriage and it's on this point of repentance where we're going to have to deal with divorce and remarriage. And we're going to do that at this juncture. And it's often at this juncture where classes end. And you say, well, why didn't you go further and baptize them? I'm misleading them if I'm making them think that they have every right to be saved and they are being saved and they are right before God when their life is not right before God, when, when they're not willing to turn from that sin, when they're not willing to turn from that, that adultery. So I need to explain repentance to them. But then there's also this acknowledgement or confession that we believe, Romans 10, 9 and 10, for the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What this is, this, this confession here, is simply an acknowledgement that we indeed are believers, that we have this kind of faith. And then furthermore, one must be baptized, and I use Mark 16, 16, because I believe it's, it's one of the strongest, simplest passages in all the New Testament. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, he that believeth not shall be damned. And I would ask them to turn and to read that. Now let's give some examples of where this is done. So let's go to Acts chapter 2. Now we've been talking about Acts 2 all through this series. So I'm going to go to Acts 2 and I'm going to remind them we've been to Acts 2 several times. And so how do I know this is exactly? Well, I know this is what must be done because here are all the passages that teach that. But let's show a case in point. In Acts chapter 2, they heard the gospel message. So let's go to Acts chapter 2 and see that this is the case where the first gospel sermon was preached on the day of Pentecost. <clears throat> you men of Israel, hear these words. And then he starts preaching about Christ. All right? He gets through with the sermon about the resurrection of Christ, and he gives the evidence of the empty tomb and the witnesses and the fulfillment of prophecy. It's quite thorough in his sermon. Then he tells them to believe. Look at verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. In other words, believe that message. Hear this message, now believe that message. When they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? In verse 38, they were told to repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Christ, for the remission of sins. That's exactly what we saw in all these other passages. And so here are the simple conditions that are laid down. Now, I'm going to be slow and methodical in my home Bible study so that they're clearly understanding what these conditions are. Now, Let's go to the last point, and the question now is, when should one obey? When should they respond? So I don't want to leave them just thinking, okay, this is what you must do, and, and uh, then if you want to do this next year, 
then you might want to think about that for a while. But I don't want to be high pressure, but I want to give them some nudge from the scripture, but not high pressure. So I'll raise the question, when should one obey? Well, let's notice biblical examples. What do we find in the New Testament when one heard the gospel? When did they respond? Well, in Acts 2, where we just were. That same day, there were added in them about 3,000 souls. They did it the same day. That seems to imply some urgency, doesn't it? And I'm going to leave that concept of urgency right there for a moment. And I'm going to move on. In Acts chapter 8, they did it immediately. Like in Acts 8 in verse 12, the Samaritans, they were baptized immediately. What about the Ethiopian treasurer, the eunuch? When he heard the gospel message about Christ, he said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? They stopped the chariot and he was baptized immediately. So in some cases, it was the same day. It was immediately in Acts chapter 8. Let's go to the jailer in Acts 16. It was in the very same hour of the night. Not three hours later, not ten hours later, it was in the same hour of the night he baptized him. Now that raises this question, what's the urgency then? Why not sit and think about it for two or three days or sit about it, think about it for a week? What was the urgency when one realizes what they need to do to be forgiven of sin that they responded right then? What was the urgency of that? There are two things. One is Christ could come and we don't know when that could happen. 1 Thessalonians 5 and in verse 2 says he'll come as a thief in the night. A thief comes unexpectedly and without warning. We have no warning when Christ will come. Matthew chapter 24, no one knows the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man comes. So it might happen a hundred years from now, 500 years, a thousand, or it might be like within a year, or it might be within a month, it might be within a week, it might be within the hour. So we don't know. And what will people be doing? Well, Matthew 24 gives the picture. People will be going about their daily activities, normal things like we do every day. So what's the urgency? Well, Christ could come, and we don't know when that's going to happen. Here's the second thing about the urgency, and that is you could die. You have no promise of it tomorrow. Your life is a vapor that appears for a little while, and then it vanishes away. By the way, that's in the context. James 4, those who were saying tomorrow we're going to do, and, and we're going to go into a city, and we'll continue there for a year. They're making plans for tomorrow. So you don't know that you're going to have a tomorrow. It may not come. It's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. So because of those two principles, that's the urgency. We don't know that we have another day. We don't know when Christ will return. Now, here's how I handle this in a home Bible study. You may want to put high pressure on your, your friend. I'll say it probably won't work that well. But what I generally do is just put that out and let the pressure of the scriptures sit there for a moment. And not try to tell them, now, you need to do that this very night, and come on, let's go and be baptized. But I tell them, at any time that you're ready, if you're ready tonight, we'll be glad to go help you with that. Or if you want to think on that, that's fine. But uh, there is some urgency. But if, when you're ready, you call me day or night. If I leave here, call me with, you know, in the middle of the night, and we'll come and we'll baptize you if you're ready to do that. And then at that juncture, I'm ready to ask them. The only question I'm generally asking that is, are you willing to look at the next lesson? We have one more, which is the church we read about in the Bible. And do you want to study that lesson? And if they do, then we go to lesson five. It's usually at that juncture, if they're really ready, that I end up baptizing them before we even get to lesson five. It may be that there's someone present this evening who sat here and began to look at this and said, you know what, I now realize I've got a problem with sin. 
And I realize that the problem I have is it's separating me from God and I want to be forgiven by the grace of God through faith and I want to be forgiven of the sin. And you've come to realize what you must do in order to be forgiven and you want to do that this very evening. Would you come tonight believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins? Would you acknowledge your faith? Would you be buried in the waters of baptism and for the remission of sins that you might have the hope of eternal life? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?